going to focus obviously on the seven churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. Today may be just a bit longer than some of the other messages because I want to try to lay an introduction, so I'll try to move through that somewhat quickly to get into the main text, which will be Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I'm not going to ask you to stand today because we're going to kind of go back into chapter 1 to begin, but just find your place in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to do an introduction here and then look at the church in Ephesus, which was what we could label the loveless church. The loveless church. And so I want you to think about this as we begin. Probably all of us, especially as we get older, have the unfortunate experience of having to go to the doctor maybe more frequently than we used to. And sometimes there are things going on inside of us that we don't really know what to say of those things. And the doctors say, we need to get a little more evidence. And so they set you up for an x-ray or a CAT scan, or an MRI. I'm sure all of us at some point have had the the privilege of laying in that little machine and getting the x-ray taken. Because they have to see what's going on under the surface. There are things happening that we can't see externally, and we've got to probe a little deeper. And that's what God is doing in these letters to the seven churches. He's probing, He's examining, He's not just being satisfied with what He sees on the outside. He's going to get to the heart of the matter. And he does that with his church, and he does that with us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active or quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrows. And listen to this, it discerns the thoughts and the intention of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. It probes. It seeks. It's like the surgeon's scalpel. It cuts, but not to wound, but to dissect us so that ultimately the Lord can heal us. That's what happens. Whether we go to the doctor with the the x-ray to ultimately try to get better or through the Word of God. He is looking under the surface. And so I want to try to to lay a groundwork for what's happening. I want to try, if I can, to take you back to the first century. Because one of the things that happens when we read the book of Revelation is like with most things, we fall into extremes. There's one camp that may be extreme and say, everything in the book of Revelation has already taken place. It was fulfilled in the overthrow of Jerusalem with the destruction of the temple. And so all of this is past history. And then there's another group that looks at this and they're futurists and so every single thing in the bible that points to revelation and prophecy is all yet to happen and i think we make an error when we fall into either one of those because there is a historical context to the bible and there is also a prophetic context at least in this letter to us today and so we have to understand that john is receiving a revelation on the isle of patmos For seven churches that were real churches that existed in real time, that were going through real events, and he is writing to them to encourage and strengthen them in that season. That doesn't mean it doesn't have any application for us or the future. Does that make sense? But we have to read it and understand what was happening in John's time because he wasn't just writing a letter to tell these seven churches in Asia Minor about 21st century America. That wouldn't have helped them any at that time. So we've got to understand what was taking place then so that we, as we know, history repeats itself, we can be better prepared for what will happen again and ultimately what God is going to do. So 
the time period we're looking at is probably around AD 95. Again, there are people that will differ with that depending on what your view of Revelation is. Some will opt for an early date of around 68. It doesn't, it does matter. I, I take the late date, so I'm going to say that this was received around AD 95. And why that does matter historically is the emperors that were in place during that time uh, will change, obviously, depending on your dating of the book. With the dating that I and, and most, the majority of scholars would go with, this later date puts us under the reign of a wonderful guy by the name of Domitian. And Domitian was an emperor in Rome. They had tried to kill John, who wrote the book of Revelation, by boiling him in oil. He didn't die. So they decided since he wouldn't die and they couldn't kill him, they would just get rid of him. So they send him to an island known as Patmos. Uh, it's a small island, probably six miles by four miles wide. The coasts are very rugged and rocky. There are people that live there now. But it's just a difficult place to get to. It was probably a three-hour boat ride back then to get out there in very troubling waters to try to get to. So that's kind of where John is, and we'll look at some stuff. I've got some pictures to show you here in just a minute. But here's one of the things that I want us to see. So flip back one page to Revelation chapter 1. Because one of the things that I've seen as a pastor over the years, I guess, is two things happen. Number one, when Christians, or when non-believers, I should say, first get saved, 99% of the time, you know where they want to jump right into? Revelation. Pastor, I, I just got saved and I'm reading Revelation. <laughs> Pump the brakes a little bit. I'm not saying you shouldn't read it, but that's a difficult place to begin. It's a difficult place if you've been saved for a long time, right? And so they want to dive right into that prophecy without a proper understanding. And it's like anything else. If you build the foundation wrong, everything else is off from there on out. And so a lot of times what I've found as a pastor is I spend most of my time not teaching people, but going back and deconstructing bad things that they've learned over the years and then trying to build it back up. So if you can get it right from the beginning, it's a lot easier uh, to be discipled and to grow. So that's one thing I'll say. But also another thing that, that I hate to hear a lot of times is many Christians say, I don't read the book of Revelation because it scares me. I don't read it because it scares me. Listen, there is a lot of symbolism. There is a lot going on in there. Uh, but if you're a believer, the last thing this book should do is scare you. It should encourage you. It should fill you with so much hope and so much joy. I understand that it can be discouraging and frightening because we all have people that we love that aren't ready. And in that respect, rather than driving us to fear, it should drive us to urgency. It should drive us to mission. It should drive us to want more than ever to tell people about Jesus. If we believe that this is the final judgment of God on a lost and wicked world, and there are going to be people that we personally love and know going through this if Jesus returns, we ought to want to get out there and herald the trumpet today about what's coming and how they can escape that day of judgment. But as believers, we ought to be encouraged. We are the victorious people. We are, have victory in Jesus. When you read through the letter and you see at the early chapters, the church gathered around the throne, and then in the latter chapters you see the church coming back with Jesus, we're with Him the whole time. Rejoice in that church. Be glad in that. Be thankful that Jesus took the judgment for you so that you would not have to endure the judgment that is coming on a lost world. Again, I know that there are different positions when it comes to end times, and those are secondary things for the most part that we can agree to disagree on. But at the end of the day, I know that my salvation is secure in Christ. 
And even if someone were to kill the body, they can't take my soul. And that's worth more than anything, any peace that the world tries to offer me. But I want you to see something right off the beginning. Revelation 1.1, what does it say? The revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. The entire Bible points us to Jesus. The book of Revelation points us to the risen, glorified, majestic Christ. The revelation of Jesus. The apocalypsis. Sometimes this book is called the apocalypse. That's from we get this word revelation. It's a revealing. It's an unveiling. We are seeing Christ glorified and enthroned in the heavens in a way that we've never seen before. We are seeing Him in all His majesty. Imagine how the disciples felt on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw Jesus transfigured. John is getting a glimpse of that in a way that has never been seen before. The awesomeness and power of our God on display. For John, face to face, for us through the pages of Scripture, but that doesn't make it any less real or any less powerful. We have the testimony of God Himself. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a declaration of victory. If we were to move into chapter 5, we, we would see John weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll. And all of a sudden there is a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he is worthy. He is worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals. He alone is worthy of that. He will judge this world in perfect righteousness, but he will protect and keep his people because he took the judgment for sin in our place. That's such good news that we should rejoice as we read. Matter of fact, drop down in chapter 1 to verse 3. What does it say in verse 3? Be scared to death of the one who reads this. Blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. The time is near. Again, historically, it was right there. It was happening for them. So in that sense, for these churches, the time was near. Yes, the things that John was saying and encouraging them in these chapters that we're looking at today, they were living in that time. But for us, looking ahead, the time is drawing near as well. But John says through inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are blessed when we read these words. We are blessed when we obey. That means to be happy. Not fearful and concerned and worried. God has given us such encouragement and such hope in the victory that He has won. He goes down into verse 5 and He says, listen to the way that He describes Christ to us. He is the faithful witness. Jesus testifies to the truth in a world that has completely went mad and doesn't want to say that anything is true anymore. Jesus is the standard of truth. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. If He's the firstborn, that means that there are others that will follow. My friend, that's you and I. Just as Jesus walked out of the grave three days later, we will walk out of the grave as well because Jesus has declared us to have the same power that rose Jesus from the dead living in us. He's the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of kings on earth. You need to hear that today. I need to hear that today. It doesn't matter about Joe Biden in the office. It doesn't matter about Vladimir Putin across the seas over there. Because at the end of the day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and King. 
the king of kings will return. And so he is the ruler of those kings. He's not troubled or concerned about who is or isn't in some specific office. To him who loves us, who loves us, loves you, and freed us from our sins by his blood. That verse alone ought to make you shout. He has done so much for his people that we can be sure of who he is and who we are because of him. He loves us. He died for us. He shed his blood for us. Verse 6, he says, he's made us a kingdom. Us, plural. Every believer is part of a unified kingdom, the kingdom of God. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, that song says, but this kingdom will never pass away. He will take his people home to glory and the church that was here will be the church that is there forever. The kingdom of priests that serve and labor for God and the Father, to him be glory and dominion. He's worthy of glory and he has all power and control over everything. That is the message of this book. That is the God and Savior that is revealed to us in this book. So Christian, if you came in here today and you're troubled and you're worried about world events, take heart if you're a believer. And if you don't know Jesus today, you have every reason to be concerned. But I wouldn't be near as concerned about world events as I would about eternal events. I would be more concerned about standing before Jesus and not being ready than what's happening thousands of miles away right now. I'm not saying you shouldn't take an interest in those things. Most certainly we should. But I'm saying perspective. What really matters. So I'm going to drop down and we're going to move into chapter 2. But I want you to see in verse 11, these are real churches that John is speaking to. Chapter 1, verse 11 says, Write what you see in a book. So John is told to write these things down in what we call the book of Revelation. And send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So these are seven real churches in Asia Minor, Asia Minor that John is directed to send this letter to. So again, like I said, he's on this island. He's been sent there by Domitian because he won't die and he won't stop preaching about Jesus and they just want him gone. He's an elderly man. He's way up in years at this point, but they just want him gone. The church tradition says that in his latter years, they had to carry John into the church. He couldn't even walk anymore. They would carry him in and put him in front of the people and he would just simply tell them about the love of God. His message that we see in his epistles was still the same. My little children, God is love. He would remind them over and over again. But I want you to, to come back with me to this time so that you can understand. I want to paint a picture in your mind or show you a picture. So we got some slides uh, that I want you to see. The first one, if it'll show up. So this is actually, if you went to Patmos today, they've built a museum on the supposed site. And this would have been the cave that John was in when he got the revelation. Now, obviously, they've put shrines and different things up in there and the floor has been redone. But this small cave, probably about 20 by 20, is where John would have been when he saw the glorified Lord and got this message. And you can visit that today on this little island. The next picture I want you to see is a map. So here's our seven churches. And if you notice, the first church there towards the coast on the bottom is Ephesus. 
Patmos would have been kind of diagonal southwest off of that. But you can kind of see it as almost like a mail route. I know that there are some people that think, well, these represent different dispensations and different seasons, and there may be some uh, validity to that. But more than anything, I think it's just the way that the letter traveled. It went up the coast, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and back down Thyatira and such on towards the end. So it was just a mail route as this letter traveled. So you can kind of see these churches as they were collected together. If you were to land on the island itself after you got over the rocky ravine and cliffs it was known for its beautiful white marble road so this is actually looking off the harbor coming up into the island and you can still see the remains and the remnants of that beautiful marble road that would have been in Ephesus as you came in uh, off of off of the seacoast there so that's kind of what Ephesus would have looked like some of the things in Ephesus this next slide there was an amphitheater okay 25,000 people would fit in this massive, I mean, the remains of that are still pretty good. You can see it there. And that was where, if you read in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, you'll see a riot taking place. The people were all stirred up and they drug some of the people into the amphitheater. They tried to drag Paul there. That is where exactly where that took place at, during that riot in Ephesus. This next picture is a picture of the temple that we see in the Bible called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. Same God, one, one a Greek name, one a Roman name. That's the remains of this temple. Each one of those columns was designated by a king, donated by a king or a Caesar. And so the worship there of these gods was, I mean, pretty wicked. There were temple prostitutes. Uh, there were many criminals that could find asylum if they were on the temple grounds. They couldn't be dealt with at that time, and so they would hang out there. So a lot of bad stuff would take place, a lot of pagan worship. And finally, this last one, uh, if you remember when Jesus died on, or was dying on the cross, he told John, the same John here that wrote this letter, to take care of his earthly mother, Mary. Later in life, they lived in Ephesus. And this is the traditional home of the Apostle John and Jesus' mother Mary as they lived out their life in Ephesus. You can go and visit that today still. So I just wanted to show you some of those things because we look at things through American lenses sometimes and it's hard for us when we read the Bible to detach ourselves from modern technology. But those are the times, that is the city that John is writing to first, the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. So we come into chapter 2, verse 1. And I want you to see what John has to say to the church there. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, I don't want to spend a, a tremendous amount of time trying to teach so much. I, I'd love to teach through the book of Revelation at some point. Uh, but for sake of time, I won't go into great depth on some of this stuff. There's many different opinions about what the angel is. The word is angelos in the Greek. It just means a messenger. Obviously, angels, angelic beings are messengers. But many times, earthly messengers are given the Greek title angelos. So was this a literal angel or was this a human messenger taking that back? Both sides have good arguments. It doesn't change the fact that this was received and sent to these churches so he sees this image uh, of Jesus here in chapter 2 he's got seven stars in his right hand he walks among the seven gold lampstands we don't have to try to figure that out because one verse before in chapter 1 verse 20 it says as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand 
and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands represent the churches themselves. The lampstand was probably what we would call a menorah. So it wasn't the light, but it held the light. Churches, I want us to understand that our purpose is that we are to be a light, but we simply reflect the light of Christ. We are a lampstand. If we try to put out light on our own, it doesn't work very good. But when we reflect the light of Jesus, we function as we ought to. And that will come back into play because Jesus is going to give this church a warning if they don't that concerns this lampstand. But that is the interpretation. The messengers are the stars. The lampstands are the churches. So it's clear there what he's talking about. I want you to see one more slide because I think, again, we have to take this letter historically as well as futuristic. Domitian was the emperor. That's his lovely wife on the left, and that's his child on the backside of the coin that had passed away. It's inscribed with Latin that is basically saying that Caesar is divine and the child of Caesar. Caesar worship was not new. It had begun with Julius Caesar, and each one of the progressing or the following uh, emperors kind of raised the bar. But usually Caesar worship didn't take place until after they were dead. Domitian had such a big ego that he decided, I'm not going to wait till I'm dead to receive this worship. We're going to start it right off the bat. And so he, he minted these coins. And the reason why I wanted you to see it, if you look at the picture on the right, it's probably hard for you to see out there. But that's his son who passed away at a young age. But I don't know if you can see, but there are seven stars that surround his son. And I believe that Jesus, again, is reaffirming the message that there is one king and one ruler. And he is the one that holds the seven stars. Doesn't matter what Domitian, with all of his persecution, and he, there was a season of peace, but he did also persecute the church. And I think, again, historically we see this, and God is reminding the people of that day, just like we need reminded, doesn't matter what's going on around you, there's one king. He can mint coins and call himself God and everything else. But he's not. I am who I am. And I think he's reminding them that. And so, as with most of these letters, uh, for most of the churches, a couple that aren't, but there is a commendation and there is a condemnation, if you will, or there's a criticism to them. And so he's got some good things to say, and he's got some things that he's concerned about to say. And that's what I want us to look at today. In verses 2, 3, and 6, he's going to tell us some of the good things about this church. Some of the things that they are doing well. Verse 2, he says, I know your works. Now, I just want to stop there for a minute. Because, let's be honest, in life, especially in church life, sometimes serving can be a thankless task. Sometimes, and you don't do it for a pat on the back. We understand that. But sometimes you just think, man, I do a lot here and nobody even cares, nobody even notices that I do these things. Even when we don't do it for applause, we all have that feeling inside of us sometimes. Do you not? It's a thankless task. The disciples felt that way in Matthew 19, verses 27 through 29. I've read this scripture many times when I've had my own little pity parties and think, man, I do so much and nobody cares. I read this portion of scripture a lot. Then Peter said in reply to the Lord, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? I'm glad that even the disciples got a little selfish sometimes because I asked that question. God, when, when do I get a little bit in return here, right? 
when, what will, then will we have? Jesus said to them, to them, to Peter and the disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That is something for them. We're not going to be doing that. That's them. But he has some more to say. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, listen to this, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many times when we serve in church, or even in life, when we serve others, we think, man, this is, I've had enough. It's a thankless task. And in that moment, I want to just remind you to remember why you're serving and who you're serving. If you will just take a minute when you're having one of those bad days that we all have and remind yourself or allow God to remind you why you serve and who you serve. And to know that just like with the church in Ephesus, he says, I know your works. I see what you're doing. If you're doing it for me from the right heart, it does not go unnoticed. It does not go unnoticed at all. Take heart in that today. He says, not only do I see your works, he says, I see your toil. That word literally means an intense labor, almost to the point of you feel like you've taken a beating because serving is a big sacrifice. I want you to understand that I don't take lightly the fact that many of you give up time to be here and do different things. Thank you for that. I know you don't do it again for that reason, but you need to hear, thank you, because I understand it is a sacrifice that you're making for the Lord and His people. But again, it's worth it. Souls are on the line, church. Everything that we do, we want to point to Christ because we want people to know Jesus. We want people to meet this Jesus and we want them to see that Jesus in us. We want to live a life that glorifies Him. And so that is the goal in our labor. Jesus knows their works. He knows the toil that they're going through. And He says, I know your patient endurance, your perseverance. They had a long-term goal. They were in it for the long term. I know again that we are all impatient to some degree and we want to see things happen immediately but we've got to at times understand that if, if you put out a garden georgia melody you'll know this if you go out there and, and throw the seed in the dirt and sprinkle a little water on it and then you wake up tomorrow expecting a full-grown plant with fruit on it you're going to be let down time and time again and it's the same way in ministry i used to get this way all the time i would say okay lord i'm gonna preach on sunday the whole church will be at the altar everybody will be saved and for the rest of their lives they'll volunteer for everything i ask and it took about 10 minutes to find out that on most Sundays, we don't have a Pentecost experience. And I'm okay with that because it's up to God. I'm just the messenger. I'm the angelos today that's bringing the word. After that, the Holy Spirit will do the rest. If you sit in your seat or you fall on your face, I can't make you do either. It's up to you. And so I have to be good with that, and we have to be good with that. We're in this for the long run. Everything that we are doing, we are laboring towards the goal of seeing Jesus face to face and hopefully leading as many people along the way to come with us. That's a long-term goal. It won't happen overnight. It will not happen overnight. These people were patient, and they had developed a long-term view. One of my favorite preachers who went on to be with the Lord several decades ago was Vance Havner. 
And he said this about a preacher, but I think it applies to just Christians in general. He said, a preacher should have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. His problem is how to toughen his hide without hardening his heart. People are tough sometimes. You can't get upset and quit every time somebody hurts your feelings. You've got to have a long-term view of this thing and say, people are going to hurt me, people are going to forsake me, people are going to betray me. Sometimes I'll be the one hurting people and betraying people and letting people down. You've got to have a long-term view of why we're serving and who we're serving. He says you cannot, I, the church in Ephesus cannot bear those who are evil. They were sound in the faith. This was a biblically solid church. He said they tested those who claimed to be apostles. They were discerning. They didn't just go out and believe the first guy that came along with a Bible and a degree after his name. They knew the Word of God. They studied the Word of God. They were Bereans when it came to the Word of God. They wanted to make sure that they were receiving the truth as the Bible declares it, not just because some charismatic speaker on television was telling them they ought to listen to that. I'm obviously being facetious about that. But nonetheless, they were discerning. And I'll say this for a church today or Christians today, how desperately do we need discernment? Many people today are being led astray in false doctrine, and much of that is because of the ignorance of the Word of God. I, I certainly will lay some of the blame on churches that have watered down the gospel and been unbiblical in their message, but I refuse to blame all of it on the church. I'm discerning to swallow down anything that's in the Christian bookstore or on TBN or put out by a, a Christian publication company that we think that just because it's a Christian book, it's biblical. And that's the worst thing that you can do because any human messenger can be an error. You have got to go back to the source and validate or reject what you've heard, including from the pulpit at K. Russo Baptist Church. I have no problem to say that whatsoever. I want you to study the Word of God for yourself and come to the conclusion. And if we differ, I am more than glad to sit down and have a conversation with you and try to come together to an understanding of what the text is saying. In Ephesians 4.14, the reason for that, so that we may no longer be children. Grow up. We've got to grow up in our understanding of the Word of God. So that we're not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The more that you study this Word, the less apt you are to get trapped or ensnared by some false teacher or false teaching. You'll never know everything. But I believe that you can study enough that the Holy Spirit will put up the red flags when something's off. You'll know. And you'll no longer be able to sit under that stuff. I've talked to so many people. One of the, one, I encourage you, if you've never watched American Gospel, to make it a priority this week to watch that. It's on YouTube. The short version is on YouTube. You should watch it. But one of the things that I, I just, I'm always troubled by, I've had people that come to me and say, I watched American Gospel and my eyes have been opened like never before and I see now that things in my church are unbiblical and I can no longer stay there. That was three years ago. And they're still there. Now, I'm not saying they should leave and come here. They should leave and go where the Holy Spirit leads them to go. I'd love them to come here, but there's a lot of other biblical churches they can go to. But what they shouldn't do is say, God has shown me what is wrong and I'm content to sit here in error because it's comfortable. We, we can never... We can never, hear me on this, compromise the Word of God for comfort. 
If you're in that place, you're in a bad place. Don't ever compromise the Word of God to stay comfortable because God will call you out of comfortable situations into uncomfortable places so that your faith and dependence is on Him so that He gets the glory, not you. I've told it many times. I never in a million years would have wanted to be a pastor or stand in a pulpit. I'm a nervous wreck to this day to be up here speaking in front of you folks. I've said it many times, and, and you can ask her. It's the truth. I don't think my wife and I spoke until our third date. I was so shy and so backwards, and that's a fact. I'm not being facetious or I'm not exaggerating. That's the truth. And so to do this is way outside of my comfort zone. I've been doing it for almost 18 years, and it's still uncomfortable. But I know that God has called, and I know that I have to follow, and the results are up to Him. And that's where you have to get to. You can't stay comfortable. So he says, not only did all those things go on, but he says in verse 3 that I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Man, that's hard. I get tired sometimes. I get tired of myself. I get tired of, I saw a meme the other day that says, I'm getting really tired of going through, uh, you know, historic events, historic world events. We went through a, we just came out of a pandemic. Now we're going into a, a conflict. It looks like, you know. And after a while, you get a little weary. Like, man, you know, it'd be nice to have, nice to have just a calm week, right? No sickness, no wars, no nothing. But hey, the birth pains, they're happening more and more. And so it's not anything that should catch us off guard. But I do want to say this, church: the more that we faithfully serve Jesus, and the more that we believe this book to be the inspired word of God, the more we will become the minority. You've got to understand that. You can, you can argue with somebody all day long that America was a Christian nation or founded as a Christian nation. But unless, unless there is another great awakening and revival that takes place before the Lord comes back, we will never again see the glorious days where the majority of our schools and our homes and our people in this land were Christ-centered. Again, there may be people that disagree with that position, but I believe in the last days there's more of a falling away than there is an awakening and revival. You know? And so we look at this, we're becoming the minority. But Jesus faced that same kind of persecution. He faced that same kind of suffering. And he said in John 15, 20, he said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You've got to understand, we can't expect to escape suffering when the one we follow suffered. It's coming for us. Be ready for it. And take hope that Christ sees our works. He walks with us. He's got the messengers in His hand and He walks among the lampstands. He never leaves or forsakes His people. They were doing a lot of good things. In verse 6, He says that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. A lot of questions about who these people were i'm of the opinion as was the early church that these were followers of a guy named nicholas you see nicholas mentioned in acts chapter six he was one of the first deacons that were called and tradition says that nicholas later departed from the faith he started a sect of his own that was basically gnostic gnostics were people that said the body really doesn't matter. You can live it up in the flesh. The spirit is the only thing that will endure. So they would partake in all kinds of gratifying fleshly things. That was in a nutshell who the Gnostics were. First John is written to combat the, the Gnostics. And so I believe that probably John, through the, the, through the messenger here and through the Holy Spirit, 
is speaking of that sect that was indulging themselves and leading others to indulge themselves in the flesh because it didn't matter ultimately if it was just the spirit that was going to be saved. Again, that doesn't matter. Whatever they were and whatever they were teaching, it was unbiblical. And the church in Ephesus stood up to it. They said, we are not going to go along with this. Matter of fact, it says in verse 6 that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. My friends, we ought to hate the things that Jesus hates, and we ought to love the things that Jesus loves. If there are things in your life that you are doing that Jesus hates, you should repent immediately. You should ask God to cleanse your heart of having a, any kind of affection or connection with things that Jesus died for. He died for those things. And you say, man, I, I don't want to do them, but they're, they're just so, so hard to break free. We talked about that in Sunday school, about the, the yoke and the bondage that some people are in. Jesus died to set you free. He didn't just die to forgive your sins. He died to free you from your sins. There is victory in Jesus, not just in glory someday, but right now. Right now. You have the ability to forsake your sins. But you've got to go to war. You've got to die daily. You've got to obey the word. You've got to make a choice. You've got to be popular with your friends or popular with Jesus. You've got to obey what the world says is right or what the word of God says is right. But you won't do both. Amos the prophet said, can two walk together unless they be agreed? You're going to hold hands with somebody, either with Jesus or the world. But you can't do both. And this church separated themselves. They said, we're not going to follow the Nicolaitans. We're going to do it right. But, there's always a but in there. You see it in verse 4. But, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or you have forsaken your first love. I want you to ingrain this in your mind today and, and through the next six messages that follow of this series. I want us to ask ourselves the questions that God is asking these churches. And the first question we need to ask ourselves for this today is simply this. As we, lead, as we read these letters, which one would come to K. Russo? If we had to pick out of these seven churches which letter would arrive at our doorstep, which one would it be? Would we be the Loveless Church? Would we be the Lukewarm Church? What would we be? I think it's important that we take that inventory as a church. But I think we need to take it down another notch and say, which one of these letters would I receive personally? Am I the loveless believer? Am I the lukewarm believer? Which one am I? It's important we ask those questions. And so, here is the concern that I have as a pastor. I hope you do as a member of this church or as a visitor of this church, wherever you're at. I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that K. Russo is known as a Bible-teaching and Bible-believing church. I believe from everybody that I've talked to, everybody that knows me, everybody that knows or had any relationship with this church, would be in wholehearted agreement that if you come here, if one of the main priorities, and I hope it is, is finding somewhere that teaches and preaches sound doctrine, you will find that here. You will find that at K. Russo. But, of all the doctrines of the Bible... One of the greatest doctrines is the doctrine of love. One of the greatest doctrines that you'll find is the doctrine of love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
By this they will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. If you love me, keep my commandments. And on and on and on, the Bible declares love to be the greatest of all the commands. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It would be like me trying to get over there and play the drums like Chris does. It would make a bunch of noise. It would sound terrible. That's what it's like if you do all those things and don't have love. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. We all said that K. Russo is a biblically sound church to which I say praise God and amen. That's so important. But I want to ask the question. I asked it last week and I'll ask it again this week. You don't have to shout it out, but I want you to think about it. How is our love? And here's a second question. Is everything that we do here motivated by love? If it's not, then go back and reread 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 until it does makes sense and it is motivated by love ask God to help us to not just love sound doctrine to not just love biblical teaching to not just love doing the right things but to have the right heart as we do those things to do it from a heart of love this church focused on all the right doctrines the church in Ephesus was doctrinally pure they probably understood justification by grace through faith and the Trinity and the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and all the big doctrines that were important but they had left their first love and Jesus had something against them for that he had a problem with that Matthew 22 verses 36 through 40 says this teacher the scribe came to ask him this lawyer did which is the greatest commandment in the law this is a big question this is this is a lawyer he wasn't asking this question because he didn't know the law he already knew the law he already knew he was testing Jesus What's the, what's, of all the laws, what's the greatest one? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to how he closes. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's a big chunk of Old Testament right there. About right, right there. That's a lot. 613 laws or more. Boiled down to two. Love God. Love your neighbor. Not just the ones that are sweet and bring you cookies and mow your grass and take the garbage can in. The difficult ones too. The enemies too. That's what Jesus calls us to. We love not at the expense of sound doctrine. That's the problem today with many false teachers and false churches. Is they say, well, love is central. Love is key. Yes, it's very important. No doubt about it. But not at the expense of doctrine. Both can exist together and they must. You must have sound doctrine with love. Not one or the other. Where are we at as a church, as a people? Because we can most certainly lose our first love. And maybe if you're honest, you're sitting here today and you don't have the love for Jesus or His people like you used to. 
I'm not talking about a thing that ebbs and flows because we all have our bad days. I'm talking about for a consistent period of time now, you have not loved Jesus like you used to and you have not loved His people like you used to. And if that has become a part of your life for a little bit too long now, He gives you the same call that He gave to the church at Ephesus. Three steps. Remember, repent, and return. Remember where you were. Remember who you were in Christ. Remember the fire that you had. Remember how you used to serve. And repent. That's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. You're going to take the next exit off the highway and get on the right path. Jump off on the next exit. Stop going the direction you're going in. Stop making excuses. Stop saying, well, Pastor, you don't know how difficult this person is or how tough my home is or how bad the world is. Yes, I do. My home's not perfect. My church ain't perfect. My life ain't perfect. I have pity parties. Sure I do. But I got to get down on my face a lot of times too and say, Lord, forgive me for being a spoiled brat, for making it about me, for not loving people and extending grace to people when you've been so good to me. I have to have those conversations. Believe me, I do. But you do too. And until you do, until you get serious, you're going to keep going down that same road that's robbing you of joy, that's robbing you of peace, that's robbing you of your purpose in Christ. Remember repent and return and get back to where you need to be now here's the scary thing that's the call but there's two different results that can happen based on whether you do it or you don't do it look what he says and we'll wrap up he says in verse 5 remember there it is remember from where you've fallen remember where you were when you fell repent come back and do repeat the works that you did at first if not so here's the bad thing about you coming to church today or watching online. You can't plead ignorance. You now know what you need to do. The question is, will you do it? If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember how we started? We explained the lampstand was like the menorah. It wasn't the light, but it held the light. The church is to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. If we lose our love and we fail to remember that we once had it and we fail to repent and we fail to get back to where we were, we will no longer be a church that reflects the light of Jesus. Period. That's, you want to know what the book is saying? That's what it's saying. It's saying that a church can have all the best programs and all the right doctrines and the fantastic worship music and a great preacher and all kinds of fellowship, but if that stuff doesn't have love, this church will be dark. It will be dark. People can come in and have fun. They can clap their hands and worship. They can say, woohoo, pastor. But there'll be no real difference being made in the lives of its people or outside these walls because there's no love and no power in it. Like I said last week, I want the power of God on my life and the power of God in this church. And if you want it, you can have it too. Because the Spirit of God is where we get it from. And He lives in every believer. But if you don't, You'll lose your witness. You'll lose your effectiveness. And a, and a church can lose it or you can lose it as an individual. But, verse 7, we'll close. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There is a reward coming, church, for those in Christ who persevere. For those who remain faithful, we will reap 
if we faint not. The Bible says we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. We are called according to His purpose. My friends, it is the last days, no doubt. I believe that with all my heart. And maybe the last hour. It's no time to go on vacation. It's no time to retire. It's no time to take it easy. Think about what Jesus has done for us in those first verses that we read in chapter 1. Think about what Jesus is going to do to a lost world when He returns for His bride. Think about the judgment that they are under. And now understand that if you love them and you care for them, that we cannot afford to keep silent. That we can't afford anymore to not get out of our comfort zones and do everything we can to make this church be the city on the hill that it needs to be to change the city around us so that we can preach the gospel. We have a duty and a responsibility. And if we fail to do that, Jesus will remove the witness and testimony and light from your life. The power that you could have had, the effectiveness that you could have had. He'll find someone else. He'll use someone else. And you will lose your rewards. You will lose the blessings that would have come by you being obedient. That's a serious, serious challenge for all of us. I don't ever want to think to say that I'm where I need to be. The pastor's preaching to somebody else because I know I'm right where I need to be. I'm doing a lot already. I'm busy seven days a week. It's not about busyness. Martha was busy and Mary chose the better portion. Busyness is not equal godliness necessarily are you serving with love are you using your gifts do you love god first do you love your neighbor only you can answer those things i'm going to invite the praise team to come i want you to think about those questions i want you to think about the word of god what church are we what letter would you receive have you left your first love and if you're not where you need to be then friends don't let the enemy bombard you with guilt and shame Hear the voice of Jesus calling you to come home and receive forgiveness and be the person that He wants you to be. Be the person you used to be. You can have all that joy and all that peace and all that back again today, but you've got to do something, and that is obey Christ. Father, we come to you today thankful for your word and thankful for the challenge that I have felt for myself this week and felt here today. Lord, I pray that we will always be biblically sound, that I will always strive to make sure that I teach and preach the Word of God as you have left it for us. But Lord, please help me to love better. Help me to love you more. Help me to love your people more. Help me to show grace to people that are difficult. Help me show kindness to people that are unkind to me. Help me to love people the way that you love people. And Lord, shine a light into my heart and into my life in the areas that aren't where they need to be. Lord, and give me the courage and the boldness to fall on my face before you today as a loving father and say, forgive me and change me. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and as we sing, if you need to come, please come. Please don't wait. The altar's open. I'll pray with you. Somebody will pray with you. If you want to join this church, if you need to be baptized, 